Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The poem says, Human voices wake us and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So tonight I wanted to finish up with uh, Seamus Heaney's 1991 book, Seeing Things, with uh, the usual, with the interviews he did with Dennis O'Driscoll about each of his collections. And this, again, uh, comes from uh, Dennis O'Driscoll's book, Stepping Stones, interviews with Seamus Heaney. And as one might expect, uh, many of the questions uh, about this, about seeing things, uh, centers on the 48 poem sequence called Squarings, and uh, I read 11 of those for this podcast, and I wanted to start with Heaney discussing those poems. I think it's uh, uh, a really uh, wonderful exchange, and uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, let me make sure this is working. Yes, you should be able to hear me. Okay. Uh, Writing the sequence must have been a great boost to your artistic morale. And Heaney says it was. I felt free as a kid, skimming stones. And in fact, the relationship between individual poems in the different sections has something of the splish-splash, one after anotherness of stones skittering and frittering across water. I should say here that uh, within the 48-poem sequence, uh, those are further... Uh, subdivided into four sections of 12 poems each. And each of the poems, of course, has 12 lines. So there's a lot of fun that uh, Heaney can have here with, with, uh, with numbers. Uh, O'Driscoll says, You employed similar terms in your lecture at Wolfson College in 2002. And here he quotes Heaney. I thought of those poems, I thought of them in terms of speed and chance. I tried to make myself wide open to whim." And O'Driscoll says, did it trouble you at all that in being spontaneous you might also be unintentionally private? That many readers might not know, for instance, what a particular judgment is. And Heaney says, I didn't worry about that at the time nor have I worried since. When I was writing the Twelve Liners, I experienced something halfway between a stiffening of linguistic resolve and a dissolution of it. Many of the lines just wafted themselves up out of a kind of poetic divine right. Uh, 
the music of the arbitrary. These are quotes from the poems. The music of the arbitrary, where accident got tricked to accuracy. Do not waver into language, do not waver in it. The phrase particular judgment may be an archaic technical term, even for Catholics. But there's a strict, phonet strict phonetic clip to it, and I'd rely on that to suggest a moment of final spiritual reckoning. And O'Driscoll asks, Given their spontaneity, did you subject the Squaring's poems to fewer revisions than normal? And Heaney says, It was a case of fewer revisions being required. I may exaggerate, but I don't misrepresent it if I say that, in general, I was subject to the poems and not the other way around. And O'Driscoll says, Did you learn things from writing them which you can draw on to this day? And Heaney says, I learned the difference between les vers donnés and les vers calculés. I learned what inspiration feels like, but not how to summon it, which is to say that I learned that waiting is part of the work. And O'Driscoll says, how long did the inspiration last? And this is, uh, this is quite an answer. Uh, Heaney says, about 16 to 18 months from September 1988 until the end of the next year. After that, it was a matter of ordering and discarding. So we have uh, 48 poems in 16 to 18 months. Um, I myself can imagine uh, writing 48 poems in a smaller time span than that and uh, probably cutting half of them um, What uh, or, or more. What strikes me here is that uh, you have 48 poems in about 18 months. And uh, if you think about that, that may actually not be all that many. What's actually surprising is that they all go together. It is all a sequence. And that the energy, and uh, as O'Driscoll says, the inspiration, uh, the tone that, each, that the sequence holds together, uh, the amazing thing is that that is what lasted from 16 to 18 months. Um, there are many poets out there who could write that many poems in about 18 months, but uh, none of them, uh, I don't think, or very few, would uh, be able to write an entire sequence straight through uh, for that long. At least it seems so to me. Um, O'Driscoll says, you had more than the 48 poems which now form the sequence. And Heaney says, a few more, maybe six or eight. I got into the habit of swooping on anything that stimulated memory or association. One of the unpublished sections was about making jam, another about sweet pea seedlings under the bed at Mossbawn. You could think of every poem in Squarings as the peg at the end of a tent rope reaching up into the airy structure but still with purchase on something uh, earthier and more obscure. So that sometimes uh, it seems like it's easy to imagine that these round number sequences um, are artificial in a way, um, that the poet either forced themselves to write that many or they wrote a whole bunch and uh, decided that 
in this case 48 was a good number to uh, settle back to. Um, but I can remember writing a book called uh, Hymns and Lamentations and uh, I wrote, is that true? I, I wrote the hymns first, that's right, I did, I wrote the hymns first. And, uh, and whether you think it's artificial or not, I stopped at 50. Um, I don't think I had many more of them, or if I did, uh, the ones that I cut were scattered through the rest of those that I kept. And when I came to write the Lamentations, I stopped at 50. Uh, there is something uh, about the mind and about inspiration uh, and about revision and about the feel or the weight of a subject that one is writing about um, that sort of sits in your mind until it's done. Um, there is something that about that process that searches for uh, a number, uh, a completion point. And in the case with me, uh, it made perfect sense, 50 and 50, and an even 100. Um, and uh, it's sort of a mystery quite uh, how that happens. I'm sure that someone uh, could go through and say, cut this one, cut that one, cut this one, cut that one, and make it uh, 24 poems or 33 poems. Uh, but the important thing to realize in a judgment like that is that uh, someone sitting next to you could say the same thing and want to cut different poems. So when you're thinking about a sequence of poems, when you're thinking about a long poem, um, or just a, a book of poetry that holds together on its own, um, or I guess, to be honest, uh, any book of poetry at all, uh, what you're what you would want to cut is not what someone else would want to cut. And we're, we're almost uh, obliged to uh, follow our instinct. And uh, it's fun when instinct allows for even numbers like 48 or 50 in uh, running around with uh, an organization and numbers like that. Let's see what else he says. Um, Yes, O'Driscoll says, when you when did you decide on the 12-line form for individual poems and on 12 poem units for each of the four sections? And Heaney says, the first poem more or less wrote itself one afternoon in the National Library of Ireland. I was working very hard on an annotation of a selection of W.B. Yeats's poems. I'd been in the library for about six weeks, and, the day I finished, I was sitting in this most beautiful reading room, with the rain coming down on the glass dome, and suddenly I wrote a few lines, and it became a twelve-line, four-three-lines thing. It felt given, strange, and unexpected. I didn't quite know where it came from, but I knew immediately that it was there to stay. It seemed as solid as an iron bar, so I began to treat it as a different kind of bar, B-A-R-R-E, a stimulus to repeating the exercise. And in a couple of days, I'd written the first three poems in the order in which they eventually appeared in the book. The form operated for me as a generator for poetry. 
What got me going in earnest was the gloss in the third poem on the word squarings, which had appeared in the second. In that case, I felt the private meaning had to be expl explicated, so I did my best to describe how a player took, quote, squarings when he positioned himself to shoot a marble in the school playground. How the preparation involved, quote, anglings, aimings, feints, and, and squints, and, quote, test outs and pullbacks, re-envisionings, all of which terms suggested ways of proceeding with more poems. Then, too, as I kept the 12-line form, the word squarings suggested that I might aim for a total of 144 total poems, but in the end I settled for 48, a four-square pattern, each square 12 12-liners. 12 and that's hard to read. Uh, I would want to read that 12 lines fast, 12 times fast. Um, and that's another thing. Uh, you you fall into these patterns, and I think of sonnets, actually. Um, it can seem, I suppose, for people who wouldn't want to write a, uh, a poem where the structure is already set out for you, uh, it seems artificial. Uh, but as I think I've uh, gotten to saying now and again these days, uh, whether you're talking about fiction or uh, nonfiction, or indeed poetry, there is no such thing uh, as realism. Um, there's no uh, complete expression of naturalism. There's no uh, uh, direct, uh, what would you say, direct transcription of thought or speech or, or, or creativity. And if there were, I don't think it would be something that we would want to read. Think of Molly Bloom's uh, monologue. Um, would you really want to uh, read the transcription of an actual person's mind? At some point, all of it is uh, mediated through an artifice, and there's nothing wrong. Uh, it's taken me years and years to realize this, but uh, uh, there is nothing wrong with artifice in one way, simply because... Uh, Basically everything is artifice, and the miracle of art is when artifice uh, looks like uh, what it isn't. It looks completely natural or sounds natural, but in any case, uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, Did you conceive of each of the four sections as being different in some way from the other three? Not initially, Heaney says. The overall shape discovered itself gradually. The title of the first section, Lightenings, and by the way, that's Lightenings, L-I-G-H-T-E-N-I-N-G-S, not Lightnings. Uh, the title of the first section, Lightenings, arrived by accident when I found a dictionary entry that gives it to mean a flaring of the spirit at the moment before death. And there were also the attendant meanings of being unburdened and being illuminated, all of which fitted what was going on as the first poems got written. The one about the boat in the air above Clonmacnoise, for example, or the ones about Thomas Hardy as a child, on his back among the flocks of sheep gazing up at the heavens. Um, and so, of course, I think of four quartets. Uh, if you read about Eliot's life at the time that he was writing it, 
Uh, he had the first quartet, uh, Burt Norton, and only later, um, I think the whole process took about seven years, uh, did he begin to write the other three poems in the sequence. And only then did he start to fit the whole thing into uh, four poems, each of five parts, and uh, trying to uh, wed each poem to, uh, to one of the elements. Um, thankfully, he did not see a need to superimpose this structure uh, too literally, uh, but the idea is there. And you can see again, uh, uh, again here, the, the idea is not of uh, creating something that is perfect or creating something that does not look like artifice but of basically doing the best that you can. And it still astounds me that um, Four Quartets, being what it is, one of my favorite things ever, is still, at the end of the day, just the best that Eliot could do. And that it would be extremely difficult to improve upon it, even if it does have its flaws. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says that the Clonmagnois poem has become the best known in the sequence. And if you remember, that's the second or third poem in the, in the selection that I read from, where, uh, where a boat is seen coming down through the air above a, a church in Clonmacnois, and the, the anchor gets stuck in the railing, and uh, they have to, uh, the monks there have to free it, and then the ship goes off into the sky. Uh, and Heaney says the story was unforgettable it's there in Kenneth Hurlston Jackson's A Celtic Miscellany. But the version I have is a bit different because I misremembered some of the details. In the original, the boat's anchor, quote, came right down onto the floor of the church, whereas I have it hooking into one of the altar rails. Somehow it enters miraculously through the roof, and the crewman shins down a rope into the sanctuary. That wasn't a deliberate alteration, although... I am sure the image in the first Lightning's poem of an unroofed wallstead and an unroofed world must have prompted it. The story has a there you are and uh, there you are and where are you of poetry, a boat in the air, its crewmen on the ground, the abbot saying he will drown, the monks assisting him, the man climbing back, and the boat sailing on. The narrative rises and sets, the magic casement opens for a moment only, and the marvelous occurs in a sequence that sounds entirely like a matter of fact. The crewman is a successful Orpheus, one who goes down and comes back with the prize, which is probably what gives the whole episode its archetypal appeal. And O'Driscoll says, there is an unhampered freedom and fullness and fluency about the entire book seeing things that suggests a second wind, a fresh start. And Heaney responds, My father's death in October 1986 was the final, quote, unroofing of the world, and I'm certain it affected me in ways that were hidden from me then and now. But the freedom of a sabbatical year and a renewed access to Glanmore Cottage also had a mighty positive effect. For once, I taught the full academic year at Harvard, from September 1987 until June 1988. So when we got back, I had a clear space of 18 months, 
since I wasn't needed back in Harvard until the spring term of 1990. Meanwhile, the formal purchase we'd arranged with Anne Saddlemeyer restored us to the beloved Vale in Wicklow, and this refers to Glanmore Cottage, which is referred to uh, as sort of an escape from Northern Ireland that Heaney and his wife and young family made in the uh, early 70s uh, that is mentioned in the previous episodes on these uh, interviews. Uh, Heaney says Glanmore Cottage was available from then on as a completely silent place of writing. Close to Dublin, no phone, no, no interruptions whatsoever. In fact, the second poem of Squarings of the Squaring's sequence is an immediate act of thanksgiving for the cottage, as a, quote, bastion of sensation. Batten down, it says, dig in, drink out of tin, know the scullery cold. This was before we'd got central heating installed. All that naturally sent a powerful surge through the system, as did the writing of Fosterling, which ended by stating that it was time to be dazzled and the heart to lighten. And it also mentioned the approach of the fifth of my 50th birthday, another factor in the whole subliminal mix. Um, a strange thing about recording Heaney's poems here, let me take a sip, is that on the one hand, I've, I've uh, come to really love the strongest poems of his that I've chosen. Uh, or what seemed to me to be the strongest of his poems. On the other hand, uh, his his poetry seems a little um, a little slight. Like he didn't take the risks that he could have. Uh, it doesn't uh, thrill me as much as reading uh, rereading Robinson Jeffers did, or uh, recording Ted Hughes here has done, or um, as I'm sure, uh, although I could be wrong. Uh, what I think recording uh, Wordsworth here eventually will do for me. And then the third part uh, has me wanting to just go back and read all of it again, which I may well do, and just uh, add new favorite poems on if those come uh, to these episodes. Um, I wanted to read, I think it's th three other small question and answers here, and save my favorite simply my favorite bit of Heaney for last, because it's something that I have referenced so often, and I don't know that I can end the night with anything but that. Uh, so the first thing, before we get to that one, uh, is O'Driscoll saying, uh, do you take any interest in W.B. Yeats's book, A Vision? Would you care to undertake some similarly synoptic work? And uh, Heaney says, all of that began for Yeats, according to his own account, because, deprived of religion in his youth, he proceeded to put together a do-it-yourself religion out of, quote, a fardel of old stories, end quote. I realize this is much too neat a reduction of his account of what happened, but it suggests a neat answer to your question, which is this. Far from being deprived of religion in my youth, I was oversupplied. I lived with, and to some extent lived by, divine mysteries. The sacrifice of the Mass, the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life of the world to come, 
the whole disposition of the cosmos from celestial to infernal, the whole supernatural population, the taxonomy of virtues and vices, and so on. No doubt Yeats would cite Blake and say that I was enslaved by another man's system and was failing to create my own, but I suppose, like many Catholics, lapsed or not, I am of the Stephen Dedalus frame of mind. If you desert this system, you are deserting the best there is, and there's no point in exchanging one great coherence for some other ad hoc arrangement. Um, just as a side note here, as someone who, like Stephen Dedalus, uh, was raised a Catholic and has since then uh, converted to Judaism, I can tell you that uh, it is entirely possible to... Uh, uh, desert is too strong a word, but to uh, leave behind the, uh, the religion of your childhood and to embrace another just as strongly... Um, that is possible. So, uh, having said that, Haney says, however, it must also be said that Yeats's construction, barehanded, of a cosmology and a psychology, if not a theophany, was first of all another proof of intellectual power, and secondly, as is universally acknowledged, a great scaffolding, a kind of theater of memory, which provided him with a sense of psychic and historic backup. He was proud of his unchristened heart, as he calls it, but at the same time he wanted the equivalent of apostolic succession. He wanted endorsement and access to the wisdom of the ages, and when he had constructed his system, he was satisfied that he had achieved this. And uh, I still have not read the second volume of Roy Foster's biography of Yeats when he talks about, uh, which is the years when uh, a vision would be covered. Um, so I hope that Yeats was uh, uh, pleased with the construction that he had found, uh, even if no one else uh, followed him there. Um, let's see, a little later on in the interview, um, O'Driscoll says, I wonder if abstract painting has less appeal for you in general than more represent representational painting. And Heaney says, probably, I find it hard to love the late hard-edged Mondrian, for example, yet it's equally hard to resist the antics of a Paul Clay or a Juan Miro. But then, wham, you think of Picasso, and he overwhelms all this finessing, all this distinguishing between abstract and, rep abstract and representational. I made my first visit to the Picasso Museum in Paris a few years ago, and in one long afternoon, got over a lifetime, got over a lifelong resistance. Until then, I had a prejudice against the sheer unremittingness of his progress. I also resisted the priapic element. In galleries, I tended to note the Picassos, but to linger with the Cezannes. But that journey through the rooms in the Marais was like a journey through a wonderland. I was overwhelmed by the plenitude of what he had done. There was more benignity in it than I had realized. It was bountiful as well as beautiful, as if Hephaestus and Lewis Carroll and Hieronymus Bosch and the cave artists of the Dordogne had all decided to pull their talents in one pair of eyes and one pair of hands 
and set them free to decorate the 20th century. And dismay it too, of course. Dismay it too, of course. I like, uh, I think this is the only time I found so far that uh, Heaney has admitted to being uh, um, what would the reaction be? I can't think of the word. Uh, uh, sort of uh, sort of frightened uh, or put off by someone who seems uh, just as creative as him but is more uh, but is even more prolific than him. I had a prejudice against the sheer unremittingness of his progress. Um, I like that. And here. And here is a nice uh, bit too. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, is it possible that for all his small output that Philip Larkin was more successful than Ted Hughes in producing enduring individual poems and that his oeuvre as a whole may prove more permanent? And I was happy to read uh, Heaney's answer here. I love what I've read of Philip Larkin. But uh, and I haven't read him enough as I sh as much as I should, um, but I'm imagining that Heaney's response will probably be my own as well. Uh, Heaney says, "One part of me is inclined to say yes to those questions, because Larkin's poems inhere so sweetly and ineradicably in the memory and in the language, as serene as they are sorrowful." Once upon a time, I compared the mood of uh, Larkin's poem At Grass to the mood of uh, Thomas Gray's Elegy, and I've always thought that in a century or two, Larkin's work will survive the way that Gray's survives, as an ongoing perfect pitch. Although it might be better and more testing to compare him to Andrew Marvell, and not just because of the connection to the city of Hull. On the other hand, an important on the other hand. On the other hand, when I think of Hughes, I think of a bright and battering sandal that has more power than pitch, more effulgence than finish, and generally more mana, M-A-N-A, -A, mana. There's Blakeian recklessness in Hughes, the poetry of the living presence, of the living present, the shimmer of the gene pool in the galaxies. When I was starting out, I got more from Hughes. I knew his poems in the joints of my body and just felt that he had a bigger transmitter. So that makes for endurance, too. He doesn't plod home at twilight with Gray's plowman, but mucks into the yard, mucks into the yard to work with Cadman, and then starts to sing creation with him in the cowshed. And I couldn't uh, put it any better than that. Uh, when he says that uh, Thomas Gray and Larkin survive as an ongoing perfect pitch, I'm reminded of when I got back to writing poetry myself, almost ten years ago now. Um, I had finished writing a long poem called To the House of the Sun. Uh, most of it had been written between 2004 and 2007, uh, but the revisions for it went on until about 2012, and uh, and even those revisions were maybe once a year. I could summon the energy to uh, to dive back into it again. So that most of the time I was not writing poetry, or I uh, I was 
perhaps trying to, or I had given up on it. And somewhere I had read uh, an almost identical remark uh, that Heaney just mentioned, uh, except it came from W.H. Auden, who said that if someone wanted to write in free verse, they almost had to have perfect pitch, or the phrase he may have used was a perfect ear. So in one sense, I started to write poetry again because I wanted to see if I could have that perfect ear, that perfect pitch. But what I found uh, almost uh, uh, almost immediately after that, since then, since I started trying, was that I gravitated, if not towards uh, iambic pentameter, and if not towards uh, traditionally uh, rhyming poetry, uh, at least my equivalent of it. And uh, that has meant the world to me. And um, the other person to finally jolt me into it actually was, uh, was Seamus Heaney himself. Um, if, I can, if I remember rightly, it was sometime in the spring of 2013 when uh, my wife and I were walking through a nature preserve that we live nearby here in Pittsburgh, uh, that I remembered what Auden had said, and I started to write poetry about that nature preserve. And it was only a few months later uh, that I was sitting at work. It's one of those uh, Kennedy assassination or 9-11 moments for me, except for poets. I remember where I was sitting. I remember the time of day. It was, I think it was around 9 in the morning. And I saw on the New York Times website that Seamus Heaney had died. Um, and uh, I was just taken aback. I was floored by it. And I spent, um, actually I can check. No, I don't know if I can check. Um, I spent the next few days um, just sort of uh, processing that fact that Heaney had died. And by that weekend I went out and bought two uh, very narrow and very uh, Two, two little notebooks that are no good for writing poetry in. I didn't want to become, uh, um, I, don't want to, I didn't want to become seduced by the lines or the look of the poems on the page. Uh, I wouldn't want that to be the reason that I continued to write these poems. I wanted to, uh, at first, just have the language. And so the, the, the goal I set myself was if I can fill out this one little thin book uh, with poems, then I will buy a proper larger book uh, and keep going. And that is basically what I've done since uh, the end of August 2013. Um, but in any case, that's another, uh, that is another uh, nod in my life to Haney. Which brings me to the, my favorite quotation from him of all. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll says, In a television interview to mark your 50th birthday, you spoke of three phases in a writer's life, the starting out, the taking stock at around 30, and the new freedom of later life. Does this still seem valid to you as an analysis, or has your perspective changed now that you are approaching 70? Is there a fourth phase, in other words? And Heaney says, if there is, I haven't got to it yet, but I can imagine it, a phase of solitary wandering at the edge of the mighty waters. What I said in that interview, I have repeated often since, 
but in a somewhat different way. I believe the three phases turn out to be cyclic, that there are renewed surges of endeavor in your life and art, and that, in every case, the movement involves a pattern of getting started, keeping going, and getting started again. Some books are a matter of keeping going. Some, if you're lucky, get you started again. Seeing things was a new start. There, for once, the old saw came true. Life began, or began again, at 50. And uh, O'Driscoll says, How did you mark the occasion of your 50th birthday? He says, Marie and I went to Rome for a holiday with Bernard and Jane McCabe, and the Irish Times published a selection of the Twelve Liners as a celebration. And O'Driscoll says, you must have written that Squaring's poem about climbing the steps of the Capitol at around that time. And Heaney says, shortly after I came home, I was pouncing for twelve lines on all kinds of occasions, chance sentences from my reading, chance sightings of dictionary entries, such as the word lightening and offing, chance visits to places that unlock the word hoard. I wanted, if possible, something nonchalant yet definite quote, unfussy and believable, end quote, as I say in the section about Han Shan's Cold Mountain Poems. And O'Driscoll says, there's even a twelve-liner about a Vietnam-bound soldier. It begins with a Yeats quotation, which I don't recognize, which says, to those who see spirits, human skin for a long time afterwards appears most coarse. And Heaney says, it's from one of his letters to Lady Dorothy Wellesley. The quotation isn't exactly word for word, but it's very close. It reminded me of a young soldier I'd once seen on an airport bus when I was coming across from San Francisco to Berkeley, the only other passenger. He was around 19 or 20, obviously lonely, and no doubt afraid, en route to Treasure Island Military Base, which was the embarkation point for Vietnam. He looked doomed, and there was a pallor on his brow, probably the result of a hangover from a party the previous night in Arkansas or wherever. It gave him that ghost-who-walks look. I'll never forget it. A crossing, for sure. The airport bus as death coach. And uh, that extends the quotation a bit, but the one I always come back to um, is that... Uh, in every case, the movement of creativity involves a pattern of getting started, keeping going, and getting started again. Some books are a matter of keeping going, and as I've said, uh, between north and seeing things feels to me like Heaney is keeping going. Uh, some books are a matter of keeping going, and some, if you're lucky, get you started again. Um, it's nice to hear someone of Heaney's renown say a thing like that since uh, it's very easy for creative types to think that they have uh, recreated fire every time. Uh, sometimes uh, what you're doing is just pushing through. Sometimes all you're doing is trying to get through the day uh, or the week or the month. Um, I imagine that a great deal of poetry that was written last year was only written to get through last year. Uh, the only difference between a lot of those poems 
and someone of the stature of Hini is that uh, people will see uh, what the famous people wrote uh, in the year 2020. They will not see the ones that uh, got people like me through the year. Uh, or if they do, it won't be for a very, very long time. Um, I enjoyed this. This was fun because uh, uh, I knew that what Heaney said about his sequence uh, called squarings um, was important. And it's so immensely valuable to have those little stories uh, from him about the writing of it and, uh, and what those poems meant to him. It's so valuable to do that, to have that. Uh, and I didn't know that it would prompt so much blather uh, on my part in response. So asking forgiveness and uh, until uh, the next episode. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.